0: just because we are small islands, we are not necessarily isolated and disconnected. We are connected to each other, and therefore we are this blue
1: continent. Welcome to Applied Geopolitics, the podcast from the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at Ray. I'm your host, Roger Baker. Despite frequent discussions about the shifting geopolitical balance in the Indo-Pacific region, the Pacific component is often overlooked. When attention is paid to the Pacific Island nations, they're frequently seen as pawns in a strategic balance, or as victims of climate change and geopolitical competition. While their national territories may be relatively small in terms of land, they possess massive maritime territories, often rich in fish and other maritime protein, as well as subsea mineral resources. The Pacific region is complex. It's colored by colonial legacies, Cold War nuclear testing, and climate change impacts. But it's also a region with its own internal, local, and regional geopolitical perspectives, its own long history that far predates European, American, or Chinese interactions, and a legacy of adaptation. To discuss the geopolitics of the Pacific, I'm pleased to be joined today by Dr. Tarsisius Kabutalaka, Assistant Professor at the Center for Pacific Island Studies at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. He has a long list of research and publications on the Pacific Islands and their relations to other powers, and is a native of the Solomon Islands. Dr. Kabutalaka, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So so as we mentioned, there's a lot of um, talk about the Pacific um, and the Pacific Islands, and it's usually about U.S.-China competition. Um, And frequently, it almost seems as if uh, the Pacific Islands are not actors in their own right. But if you're looking at the region, how would you define the geopolitical dynamics in the Pacific from a Pacific Island perspective?
0: In in terms of international relations, and more specifically geopolitics, the most important thing that Pacific Island countries have is their sovereignty. Because they are, or at least most of them, are independent, sovereign countries, that have a vote at the UN. But individually as sovereign countries, because they are small, it's often difficult to participate in international forum and be able to exert influence in the same way as global powers do. And so for Pacific Island countries, the most important way of doing it is collectively, and therefore regionalism becomes important. Yes, the international relationships are often bilateral. So individual Pacific Island countries establish relationship with China or the US or France and so forth, but at the same time, they come together collectively as regional organizations. And the biggest challenge for Pacific Island countries is managing their relationship with great powers. And Pacific Island countries, as we've seen, in the articulation of the Blue Pacific idea in 2017 and the Boyer Declaration of 2018. The most important thing for them, uh, one, is that sense of belonging to this region, that the Pacific Islands is not only a space for geopolitical competition, but it is a home for these countries. So the sense of belonging, the sense of being home in the Pacific. And along with that is the idea of responsibility. Because we belong here and because this is our home, we therefore have responsibility over it. And flowing from that is the expectation that others who have an interest in the region must also have that kind of responsibility. More recently, we've seen... The Blue Pacific Agenda, Blue Pacific Strategy 2015 that the Pacific Islands Forum has put out. And what they are trying to say is to set agendas. The development partners, including China and the US and France and Australia, can express their interest in the Pacific Islands and assist Pacific Island countries through the Blue Pacific Strategy 2015. Uh, And so there's that attempt to set agendas for others. However, you know, the reality is that it is often really difficult for small island countries to manage, you know, the interests of larger countries like the U.S. uh, and China and others.
1: Well, in looking at this, when we think about this idea of... um managing these external powers. Um, how, how do you see the difference in perceptions from the outside in versus the inside out of, of priorities? And how does that impact the ability of these island nations to be able to manage that external competition um, or potentially leave them vulnerable to that competition?
0: So for Western countries, in particular those led by the US, uh, the US, Australia, France, and so forth, the Pacific Islands or the Pacific Ocean is a large space. It covers a huge part of our planet's surface area. And because of that, it is best to have control over it. Because if you don't, somebody else will come in and attempt to have control over it. And that somebody else in this case is China. And so for them looking in, the Pacific is a space for geopolitical competition, that it is a space where they try as much as possible to have control over these places in the same way as they did during the Cold War era, where they, you know, the, it, the, the Pacific Ocean became an Anglo-Franco-American lake where they had total control. That, of course, has changed because we have a new power in the region. For China, perhaps the Pacific Islands provides an opportunity to project itself as a global power, particularly as a global economic and political power. And who knows, you know, we have seen in history that when countries become powerful economically and politically, they eventually project themselves militarily as well although we haven't seen that about China in the Pacific. And so that's looking in from outside. From within the Pacific, as I mentioned earlier on, uh, the biggest thing from the Pacific Islands' point of view is responsibility to this place. And for Pacific Island countries, as they've said in the Boyd Declaration, and it's very clear in the Blue Pacific Strategy 2050 that the most important existential threat that Pacific Island countries face is not China, that their most important concern is not the geopolitical competition between the U.S. and China, but rather it is climate change and how it's changing livelihood for Pacific Islanders. And so these are different ways of looking at security. For Pacific Island, security is much more than geopolitical and geostrategic control, that it's more broad, it's more encompassing, it is about livelihoods, it is about trying to address the climate change challenges. And so those are two different ways of looking at it. Powerful countries, both China and the US as others, have verbally expressed their commitment to climate change, particularly the Biden administration. But how that translates to real work in addressing climate change issues is yet to be seen. But they've expressed that they will work with Pacific Island countries in addressing climate change issues. We see it in the uh, U.S. Pacific Partnership that was signed in September of last year
1: commitment to climate change. When when you look at this from uh, the regional perspective, in in ways of either cooperating or working with the outside powers, and then ways of coordinating internally, obviously history probably plays a role uh, in the way in which the Pacific Islands look at some of these outside powers. Right, as you noted, Australia, the 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 UK, um, France. Uh, the United States, Japan even, have had uh, imperialistic positions within the Pacific Islands at different moments in history. China, uh, much less so, and they're acting, or more recently, have been acting in a very different way economically, although we've seen lately the the, the police um, security cooperation in the Solomon Islands and offers of similar things like that. How does that historical perception um impact the way in which Pacific Island nations interact with some of these outside powers?
0: It it does, you know, in a lot of ways. You know, the thing about Western countries is that there is greater familiarity in the Pacific Islands region about the West, and particularly Western countries. And that can be both a good thing, as well as not so good in that the Pacific Island countries therefore know the history of how these places acted uh, in the Pacific in the past. So a lot of US officials, when they frame US relationship with the Pacific, they often emphasize World War II. Uh, and the thing about the World War II emphasis is there is this idea that the US came to the Pacific Islands and helped liberated the Pacific from the Japanese, uh, and therefore the US can come back as a liberator again, in this case, liberating the Pacific from influence from China. The problem with the World War II framing is what World War II actually did, was it gave the US and Western countries more power in the Pacific Islands region, colonial power. And so the U.S. trust territories that the, that the U.S. took from Japan, Palau, FSM, and the Marshall Islands, the U.S. therefore had more influence in these places. And what we've seen since the World Second World War is that they've used this post World War II power to increasingly militarize the Pacific, the nuclear testings. In uh, the Marshall Islands, in Christmas Island by the British, in Johnston Atoll by uh, the, the U.S., the French in Moruroa and Fangataufa in French Polynesia, the British in Australia as well, and also the establishment of military bases in places like Kwajalein in the Marshall Islands. Of course, Guam, the military base there, has a much longer history but strengthened as a result of World War Two and what happened afterwards. And a lot of those events that happened during the Second World War continues to kill people in places like Solomon Islands, where you have thousands of unexploded ordinances. And so while the use of Second World War to frame this relationship is, you know, good in the eyes of the U.S., it's probably not the same with Pacific Island countries, with Japan, of course, as we know, they had control over the northern Pacific, and the brutality of their control over places like Guam during the Second World War is also remembered. Now, China does not have that imperial history in the same way, as you mentioned. However, China has a much shorter history, not in the sense of the Chinese state, but Chinese people. And a lot of its influence in the Pacific is through businesses, Chinese entrepreneurs coming out to the Pacific. You know, there are generations that came in the 1800s and a lot of them in the early 1900s, but there are also newer Chinese who came in do not necessarily represent the Chinese state, but the people through which Pacific Islanders then understand China. And so for a lot of Pacific Islanders, their first encounter with China is the shopkeeper at the Falikau in the villages in Tonga, or the Chinese stores in Apia in Samoa or Honiara in Solomon Islands or shops in Papua New Guinea. Or the Chinese logging company owner who operates a logging company in Solomon Islands of Papua New Guinea, or those harvesting and exporting bech de mer in different parts of the Pacific. That's their encounter with China. And that's often not really good as well. Yes, shorter in terms of history. Yes, not an imperial influence. But those are encounters that influence the way in which Pacific Islanders view China as well. Uh, and so, You know, in these relationships with outsiders, it's complex, and uh, Pacific Islanders often have to go through a lot of historical as well as business uh, um, experiences to try and understand these places much better.
1: That is reminiscent, at least from my experiences in working uh, on issues in Southeast Asia, where uh, at least initially, a lot of the interaction from China is is economic, and it's not necessarily from the state; it's from the private business. And of course, that that has its benefits, and it also becomes a source of tension when there are economic problems or economic challenges, where there's a perception that the um, the the wealth is over concentrated in outside hands. Yeah. So, uh, stepping back from the the sort of. Outside connectivity, or the relationship of the Pacific Island states to the outside, how do they interact internally? There is clearly no one Pacific, right? The the island nations are unique. Um, You know, from from an outside point of view, it's divided into Micronesia, Melanesia, Polynesia. Um, We've seen, of course, over the last couple years, some particular challenges inside the Pacific Island Forum. Um, with countries dropping out and now starting to come back into the forum. How would you describe the key elements of Pacific Island geopolitics, maybe both within regards to the way the island nations interact with one another and perhaps any of the the challenges within particular countries?
0: So, You're absolutely right in that the Pacific Islands region is complex. Uh, actually, you know some parts of the Pacific are much more complicated in many different ways. Solomon Islands, where I come from, we have eighty seven different languages Papua New Guinea eight hundred different languages, Vanuatu with a population of about three hundred thousand people over a hundred different languages. And so there is that kind of complexity, but there are also complexity in the relationships that we have. Uh, And since the 1970s, we have attempted to build this regional identity. And people talk about the Pacific way. People talk about the need for collective diplomacy. And collective diplomacy has proven to work in the past. For instance, in the Pacific Island countries' negotiation with nuclear powers, and the signing of the Rarotonga Treaty, or the anti-nuclear treaty, or in the negotiations with the U.S. over fisheries, particularly the U.S. South Pacific tuna agreement. And so those are areas where we've seen that collective diplomacy does work. And by and large, Pacific Island countries work collectively. But there are also differences among Pacific Islands differences between those that are seen to have dominated the region. This includes Australia and New Zealand, but not only Australia and New Zealand. Sometimes, you know, some Pacific Island countries seem to think that places like Fiji, which is central to a lot of our regional organization and hosts a lot of our regional organization headquarters, has a more voice in this collective uh, Pacific family than others, or that Polynesian countries become dominant over Melanesia or Micronesia. And so there is that internal dynamics. And then on top of that, you have the influence of outside powers that differ in different regions. So the U.S. has you know, a lot of influence in the North and Pacific, we've seen that they recently signed or renewed the Compact of Free Association agreements with Palau, FSM, and the Marshall Islands. And along with those, uh, assistance that the U.S. has provided for these places, provided for by the Compact Agreement, that is not the same as other Pacific Island countries. In the South, you see Australia having a more influence in Papua New Guinea. So Australia's Pacific Islands is largely Papua New Guinea and increasingly Solomon Islands as well. And so the Melanesian part of the Pacific and then Aotearoa, New Zealand in the Cook Islands, Niue and the Eastern Pacific, Samoa, Tonga, Tuvalu and so forth. And so you have the very local dynamics. And then you have the nation-state dynamic and the regional dynamic. And then you have, you know, powers coming in and making those kinds of relationships much more complex as well. And then, of course, you know, with the powers coming in, it means that we speak different colonial languages. I speak English, or at least a version of English. Others speak French. And then our brothers and sisters in West Papua speak Bahasa, Indonesia. Those in Rapanui or Easter Island, uh, speak Spanish. And so it creates a lot of complexity in our relationships and the way in which we understand each other, which in a way can make us vulnerable uh, to being influenced when it comes to geopolitical competitions.
1: When, when I was growing up, there was no Indo-Pacific Um, and in fact, frequently the, the region was, uh, referred to as Oceania, right? And it was considering that Australia, New Zealand, and the Pacific Islands as a single whole. And as, as you've talked about it, there are multiple frameworks within which to look at this region. Is there a, a common view from within the Pacific Island nations, um, you know, maybe may espoused in the concept of Blue Pacific or in some other way that that gives shape to the region? Or is it all dependent upon where you're looking from and, and what level of time you're looking over?
0: I think it's just dynamic, um, or the idea of what constitutes Oceania or the Pacific is dynamic over time as well. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, Oftentimes, people use the term Oceania or others use the term Asia-Pacific, although the term Asia-Pacific refers mostly to the countries in the Pacific Rim. Uh, And therefore, the Pacific is like the hole in the donut. It's in the middle, it's empty, it's not really the emphasis of the Asia-Pacific. Oceania is a term that's much more used. Uh, More recently, as you mentioned, people are now trying to come up with new terms that is inclusive and represents everybody. And so the idea of the blue Pacific and related to the idea of the blue Pacific is this idea of the blue continent. That the Pacific is regarded as small and isolated because people see it as disconnected islands, that islands in this ocean that are disconnected from each other. But actually, if you look back in history and the traditional relationships that different Pacific Island places have, they were never really isolated. The people from here in Hawaii traveled back and forth between here and Tahiti and other parts of the Eastern Pacific and the rest of the Pacific, traded, stories, crisscrossed the region as well. And so there have always been networks that are economic networks, relationship, cultural networks that existed prior to Europeans coming. And so if you look at it in that sense, these are not isolated small islands. This is a large ocean continent. And so Pacific Islanders are trying to define themselves in that way vis-a-vis the continents of America or Asia or Africa that we are, just because we are small islands, we are not necessarily isolated and disconnected. We are connected to each other, and therefore we are this blue continent. But these are, you know, ideas, ideas that, you know, we need not only to understand ourselves, but to get others to understand it as well. And it becomes challenging when outsiders then appropriate these ideas for their own purposes, as we've seen in the Blue Pacific, the partners to the Blue Pacific. And so the Blue Pacific idea, the idea of belonging, the idea of responsibility has now been taken by development partners and used for both good as well as potentially challenging ways. Good in the sense that you know, these development partners are able to get together and figure out how they can best relate to and work with Pacific Island countries and how they can best engage, you know, things like the Blue Pacific Strategy 2050. And so that's good in that development partners are trying to work out how they engage, how they relate to the region. But also, It is a way of appropriating that idea of the Blue Pacific, which could mean something completely different in the region, and using it as a way to project their power and their influence over the region. Uh, And so, you know, as we engage with the partners of the Blue Pacific, the membership of which has increased since September last year, it is important that we think through these things. Uh, and, like you know I mentioned earlier, these are things that we are grappling with and thinking through, and it changes with generations
1: there's There's some interesting parallels between the the this sort of identification within the Pacific and what's happened at different periods of time in the Arctic um where in the Arctic, perhaps there's more um uh national territory. And the the native populations are now within other nations instead of within their own nations, but still trying to define these, these different ways of looking at a particular region um, that's not necessarily from an outside-in way, but from an inside-out way. And at the same time, running into that uh, dynamic where that very definition then becomes both a, a way of interaction, but a way for outside powers to be able to start to start to push their own interests within that same space and even compete with one another on, on who's a better claimant to the, um, to the title.
0: Yeah, that's, that's absolutely... I mean, you know, it's, it's all about mapping, mapping of identities that then leads to the mapping of geographical spaces. So the idea of the Indo-Pacific now becomes something that we use all the time. But let's not forget that it has a very recent history in terms of the way in which it is used today. The Japanese have used it uh, to define the way in which they engage in their aid, particularly to South Asia. But the way in which it is used, in you know, particularly by the US, is to define a geographical space that basically stretches from the west coast of the US to the east coast of Africa. And Claim that in some imaginary way, that is the space of US sphere of influence. Uh, And therefore, the way in which we engage with each other in this space is dictated by the US and its allies. Uh, And, you know, in, in terms of language that we use, we have used it so often that it becomes normalized, and very often we're not critical of it. I think there is a need for a bit more critical engagement uh, with these languages, with the geostrategic mapping that comes with it. And mapping is a very powerful tool. To define a space as your sphere of influence is to claim control over it. And that's why when colonial powers went around the world, exploring places, one of the most important part of their team or their, 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 their exploration team were cartographers so that they could not only find places, but they could also map them. And by mapping them, they claim control over these places. We're doing the same thing geopolitically and geostrategically today. Uh, and i think we need to be a bit more critical in the languages that have been thrown
1: around well i think that's that's a, a, a really important point and i you know that that idea of the power of the map um and the power of the ideas behind the map and the way the map is utilized um to shape perceptions and i guess the the question i would ask you then is for for observers outside observers um Seeking to engage or understand uh the region better, um, what would you characterize as the most important things uh that they they need to be aware of about uh the pacific island regions um how they perceive themselves and and how to uh effectively interact within that region?
0: You know, I think it is important to find out so so when we look at the Oceania region. It is important, first and foremost, to acknowledge the fact that this is not an empty space. And secondly, that these are not just small island states, that they are big ocean continents that have relationships with each other. But they are also located in a part of our planet that covers, the Pacific Ocean covers a third of our planet's surface area and also plays a really important role in, in our planet's livelihood. And therefore, that we have collective responsibility to it. And I think it's important for outside powers to listen to what are the agendas that Pacific Island countries think are important to them and be able to participate in that. Take, for instance, the regional frameworks that we have be able to to be part of that rather than merely to see the Pacific Islands or the Pacific Ocean as a space that is open for geopolitical competition, that we all collectively, both Pacific Islanders, as well as people from elsewhere, have a responsibility to this place. Uh, And it's that responsibility that I think is more important than any geopolitical competition. And perhaps I'm naive in saying that, in that big powers like to compete, like to have control over places. But at the same time, it is important to ensure that that, that desire for control doesn't become detrimental not only to the Pacific, but to our entire planet.
1: Well, I think it may be that the 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 tools of power change over time, and perhaps as as uh, we look at this region, we look at other areas of the world, and the idea of competition that the older tools of power maybe are giving way to newer um, uh, methods and newer types of interaction, uh, uh, whether through economics or through politics or through cooperation rather than conquest. And something to be something to be thinking about as we as we look at how countries i guess seek to to shape the international rules and and how many of the countries who are not part of designing the global rule set seek to um, modify them to better take in their own local concerns and their own uh, local histories and dynamics
0: that's that's absolutely true, and also you know thinking about whether the global mechanisms that we have for you know coming to consensus over issues are working. And if they're not working, how can we best address them? Uh, and, so, and, and and ensuring that there is distribution of power in these global mechanisms. Uh, and you know, those are challenges that are often beyond the Pacific Island countries. But Pacific Island countries go out there and voice their concerns as much as possible in international forums such as, you know, on climate change issue uh, and see if global powers can see things from their point of view.
1: Well, Dr. Kabutalaka, I think we're, we're pushing time here, but I really want to thank you for taking your time to um, bring these perspectives and these ideas uh, to light in this conversation.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: If you would like to keep up with the latest discussions and assessments of the shifting global geopolitical balance, visit RAINNetwork.com and sign up for alerts and information from the Stratforce Center for Applied Geopolitics at Rain. That's r a n e networkcom I'm Roger Baker. Thanks for listening.